Welcome to the Dead Format. My name is Ian McEwen, and I'm joined tonight by Alyssa Smiley's husband, Tom, and we're here to talk about Legacy. I think that I did a good job on my anniversary weekend, so I might be able to play Magic on my wife's birthday. That's what we're pulling for. I don't know how it's going to go. It may depend on if she listened to this cast intro or not, <laughs> but hopefully I'll be there. I tried to do my part, man. You know what? I'm I'm proud and I appreciate it. Five years is a big one, right? I haven't I haven't messed it up. Yeah, Alyssa's great. A lot of listeners probably know her. She used to play magic with us and uh she's a good player too. She beat me the only time we ever played in a mirror. Green white mirror. Yeah, she actually she won a beta Mox Ruby in a tournament and got called a dirty at a PTQ. That's a that's a good story. Are those two different stories? Hopefully not the same story. They are they are not the same story. I actually don't know whether or not I should have said that, but Probably not, no. That that actually happened. That's insane. Who was it? I honestly I can't remember. I can look up the tournament. I remember the exact tournament that it happened in. Were you there? I was there. She was 3 and 0 going into round 4 and peak eruptioned her opponent's mountains for three consecutive turns until they didn't have any land left and her opponent called her that i remember the tournament because she got a game loss because i filled out her deck list correctly but i put searing spears in her deck instead of lightning strikes which had just been printed and she was mad at me for that one so the deck list didn't match the deck that she had, but you claim you filled it out right, but the deck was wrong? So Searing Spirit just rotated out of standard and Lightning Strike oh, printed. Oh, I got you now. So I, I had Searing Spears in the deck, which are functionally identical to Lightning Strike. So she got a game loss after she Searing Speared somebody in game one of round four after going undefeated throughout the rest of the day, and I had to crack packs until we had enough lightning strikes to f to finish her deck. Yeah, that's brutal. It was it was bad bad day in the Smiley household. <laughs> so, yeah, last week, unfortunately, our listeners might have heard we had some uh, technical difficulties. My audio started getting spotty around the ten minute mark, and we had to cut the cast short. I think you still released about ten minutes of it, right? I salvaged whatever I could. We There were just too many issues to actually be able to release it. There were like five seconds on, five seconds off in your audio for the whole rest of the cast. And I was actually really happy with what we recorded. And it's unfortunate that we weren't able to get it out to everybody. Yeah, it was a pretty decent episode, I think. We did a lot of reviewing deck lists and speculating on some strange choices that we saw. But I think uh, for this episode, we're going to do something a little different, right? We wanted to uh, talk about a larger issue, something that we actually agree on, which is the reserve list. That is what we're going to talk about today. I get so into it when I'm in Facebook conversations with people about this topic that I can't wait to sort of talk about my ideas that might seem unpopular, but really i believe they're 100 percent true i would call them deeply unpopular i think and why are we releasing this episode really you know it's, we're just asking for people to to come guns blazing at us now i'm i'm willing to take that when it comes to something that i feel so strongly about like the reserve list i wouldn't really want to leave my political opinions out on a podcast but i feel very knowledgeable and motivated to share the reasons why the reserve list is actually good for the game. Well, you heard it here first. That's definitely not the common take. So why do you feel the reserve list is good for the game? Okay, so there are a ton of reasons. But let me just sort of start with some of the things that I'm not going to get into in this argument. Now, obviously, Wizards of the Coast credibility is sort of at stake. If the reserve list is repealed and some of those cards come off the presses to sell to sell sets, 
Now, obviously that is important, but it doesn't fit into my argument. Another thing that is a legitimate argument to why the reserve list should stay is the legal argument about promissory estoppel, which has been sort of driven into a, the ground. My argument isn't based off of that at all. The crux of my argument is that eternal magic players can continue to play the game without monetizing wizards at all. In attempts to try to monetize the eternal market, the only thing that Wizards is going to do is create more eternal magic players that will end up contributing less to Wizards' bottom line in the long run. Yeah, I completely agree with that sentiment. We've talked about this ad nauseum in the past. I am 100% on board with that. Did you play... I'm sorry, I should know the answer to this. I'm sure we've talked about it. But did you play Magic in 1995? I did. I also lived through 1995 as a Magic player. And you hear a lot these days the Chronicles argument. They printed 4th edition in April 1995, I believe, and Chronicles in July 1995. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, Chronicles almost killed Magic, or 1995 almost killed Magic. And there's some hyperbole in that, as there is in basically everything that you hear about the game. But there really was panic back then. You had certain cards from Legends, The Dark, such as like Land Tax, Sylvan Library, coming in 4th edition. And then, out of nowhere, this extra over 100 cards, the, the Tron Lands, Blood Moon, the Elder Dragons, just got reprinted in Chronicles. Urnum Jin. Yep, e- even though those cards weren't cycled in in 4th edition, the way that we been led to expect that cards would come in from expansions. This was Modern Masters Zero, is really what this was, with a pack price of, I believe, less than the pack a price of 4th edition. I think Chronicles were just $2 straight up. And it really just deflated the hell out of all those cards that were reprinted in Chronicles. It absolutely did. And also another, another sort of thing back in that time was Fallen Empires and how that set release went with vendors. Basically, up until Fallen Empires, when vendors placed their orders for boxes, they would get about 10% of what they wanted from Wizards because the runs were so low and Wizards was really trying to expand. So stores started to order more then they they could actually sell in order to get a larger allotment from wizards so when fallen empires came out stores were putting in inflated orders and they got it all and that really flooded the market as well so not only was wizards dealing with the backlash of chronicles it was also dealing with how sort of flooded the market was for fallen empires Absolutely. And then Homelands was an incredibly weak and it had interesting flavor, but really not a very well-designed set, I would say. I think it was like a side project, not one of any of the main design teams at WotC. So that was an uninspired set. You had two reprint sets in 4th edition The Chronicles. The most recent quote-unquote real set was Fallen Empires. And then Ice Age was basically the only new release in 1995, like was well-received at all by the fans. So it was really a pretty dark time. And then in March of 1996, uh, Wizards announced the reserve list. And really that sort of quelled the collectors of the time's fears that their cards were going to turn into what happened to baseball cards in the 80s, and what happened to comic books in the 90s. Yeah, and part of this discussion is that we're rational actors, right? We're acting in our our own self-interest. We're making intelligent decisions about these cards. And when you're talking about, you know, back then, Black Lotus was $200, right? The Elder Dragons from Legends were upwards of $40, $50, 
you probably double that number when you're talking about today's dollars, just straight up, you know, in terms of inflation. So people are laying down real money for these cards, and when they get reprinted out from under them, it, it really it feels bad, and it creates this lack of trust with between wizards and the player base. Now, I 100% agree that that is important, but I think the main argument against the abolishment of the reserve list has nothing actually to do with that trust relationship between wizards and the players. I agree. I think it's definitely bigger than that. And when I say that I am pro keeping the reserve list, I'm not saying that just purely out of greed coming from somebody who already has all the cards that I need. I actually think that it is better for the game in the long run. And hopefully we can lay out that argument as we go on today. Yeah, absolutely. So where do you want to start this? So do you want to start with the invention of standard? Well, I don't, I don't even think that we need to start with the invention of standard. I think that we just first want to lay down the baseline for how Wizards of the Coast makes money. Yeah, that's great. So Wizards of the Coast doesn't make money directly from the secondary market. When a local game store or a vendor or another player sells a card, Wizards doesn't get any cut of that. They are out of the equation. They make money when they sell packs and people buying sealed product from them. Whether it's booster boxes on Amazon now, supplemental product like the Commander decks, the signature spellbooks. Wizards makes money from selling sealed product. And Wizards has every motivation to make their formats involving that sealed product the most attractive formats to play. Mainly, standard, sealed, and draft. Absolutely. Another thing that we need to realize is that there are many people who play Magic that are not Wizards' ideal customer. Generally, these people don't buy sealed product or any of the products that were mentioned, but they might play a lot of Magic, and they might be able to do that because they focus on eternal formats that change less frequently, have less of an impact from new printings, and those players can play Magic for a very low dollar amount compared to what a standard player would have to purchase from Wizards to play standard. And once you have major purchases of your eternal cards, your relationship with Wizards basically ends at that point. It's it's much less than it would be if you were somebody who went to your local game store every week and drafted and played standard Friday Night Magic every week. You are purchasing way more product that turns over and cycles through in Wizards' yearly rotation for Standard. That's really the target market that Wizards has wanted to go after. Now, there's some exceptions to that. One, their Master Set reprints, mainly Modern, which we'll talk about what happened with that. And two, what their new sort of target market is, which is mostly Magic Arena where they cut out all of the supply chain and are not only able to sell you the cards and the entries, but what the LGS would sort of do and sell you the play space that you're playing in online. Yeah, so basically any company, if you have a revenue model, ideally you have a subscription revenue model where... You have a user base, however many thousands or millions of people, paying a certain amount every month or every quarter or every year to access your product. And that's a renewable revenue stream. And you want to have as much of your revenue as possible in that subscription-style revenue stream. 
And that's what standard provides and eternal formats do not provide to Wizards of the Coast. Now, one popular argument for monetizing the reserve list is Wizards can make more money if they reprint dual lands at, let's say, Expedition Rarity and can sort of draw that value out of the secondary market like they had been doing with Modern Master sets. Yeah, I guess we kind of need to get into the Modern Masters thing then already. When, when Modern Masters came out in 2013, it was met with glowing reviews from the player base. The stores did really well. Everybody was clamoring to get it. Everybody loved it because there had been a boom in the player base really coming out of the recession. It, 2010, I think, was Zendikar through like Innistrad 2012 and Return to Ravnica 2013. There had been this massive jump in players and everybody wanted to get into modern, but the player base had been smaller when cards like Tarmogoyf and Dark Confidant had been printed. So the supply on those was really being strained and you had a much larger player base. So what they did was they sort of eased those packs in those cards, you know, they ease them into the secondary market through Modern Masters at a $7 price per pack. And it worked. It, they did it very slowly, very controlled, and the players didn't protest it. But the long-term effect of that, and as they eventually had to keep doing that over and over at increasing frequencies to keep beating the last year's balance sheet, what ended up happening was they drove players who were on the standard hamster wheel into modern where they no longer had to keep giving subscription revenue they had their deck and they were modern players now and they weren't going to go back to standard and one of the things that sort of happened in that the beginning of the master set cycle was modern masters one was executed very well the supply was low the price point was high, and there were some cards that when they were reprinted, not only maintained their secondary market value, but increased because of the increased demand of people for modern. As the years went on, one, they had already used quite a bit of their reprint equity in previous master sets, and two, they were increasing their print runs. So if you think about the value of the cards that were being reprinted. There was a transition from people's collections back into the pockets of Wizards. And as those sets had become more and more frequent, almost to a year toward the end, Wizards didn't run out of cards to reprint, but they ran out of the high reprint equity that really sold those sets in the beginning and i 100 percent agree with you that there were many people who were playing standard who would consider themselves standard only players that found themselves with access to an eternal format and found that that format was better than standard and decided to stay playing modern and as soon as you have a magic player that drops out of that standard rotation, that person is much less likely to buy packs from Wizards and much more likely to be spending their money buying singles where Wizards doesn't directly profit from it. Absolutely. And you hear these sort of anecdotal arguments a lot where modern or legacy players will say, oh, well, if standard wasn't this or that, if it was more interesting, if the power level was higher... It could be any number of reasons, but if they met these conditions, I would play standard, right? But that's, that's always a hollow... Well, here's the problem with that. Magic is a game that has evolved over 25 years. And Magic is actually its own biggest competitor. And let me just sort of say this. Wizards of the Coast wants you to play standard and draft and play the new formats that are developing there are other formats that could be more fun 
more interactive, more attractive to the play style that you want to play that directly compete with the newer formats. And if those sets and those cards aren't meaningful to you and you don't enjoy playing them, you can continue to play Legacy and Modern and Cube without directly contributing to the Wizards of the Coast bottom line. There was a there was an article that NPR put out in 2015 that the player base, I saw a lot of people like retweeting this and praising it because it was, you know, the mainstream media covering magic. I believe it was the release of Modern Masters 2015, so it probably coincided with the Grand Prix there. I remember there was an article in Rolling Stone around the same time, and they were talking about the genius of the game. I think they interviewed either Morrow or uh, somebody high up. It, it might have been... I, I don't remember. Anyway, they uh, were talking about the genius of the game being standard and the fact that you don't need these old cards, even though the game has this 20-year history, you don't need these these old cards to play. And it reminded me of the, the saying, a lot of people say this, whoever invented x game blackjack poker whatever was smart but whoever invented chips was a genius because you're in a casino and you're removed from your money because you're spending chips like you know what's a chip right and it sort of applies here too whoever invented magic was smart but whoever invented standard was a genius because it keeps people engaged with the company spending money on the hamster wheel and we enjoy you know, new set design, all the things that that affords. Because if the engagement with the company was just a one-time deck purchase, you would need the game to be continually growing, which just isn't possible over a 25-year period, right? It's possible over two- and three-year periods. But the game would have died by now. It also, as a model, doesn't take into account the people who are going to spend a very large amount of money on purchases people who want everything new that is coming out and in having a model that isn't based off of people spending a lot of money you really start to lose your potential so what are those whales that they're buying like a case every set is that the point you're making yeah i know i or i knew Quite a few people at any time a new set would come out, they would buy a case and they would crack it the first weekend. And they would be able to build whatever they wanted in Standard and they have their set binders filled. And lately in Standard, Wizards sort of messed up the math for those players when they introduced Expeditions. You want to get into that one? Because I agree with you, but... Well, so Wizards in their drive to beat last year's sales came up with a brilliant idea in zendikar one they had their hidden treasures promotion where they released cards that they had from the reserve list in packs now they didn't print new ones but they released cards that they had in their storage in zendikar packs at a very 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 low release rate and in Battle for Zendikar, they decided to release Expeditions at about 1 in 144 packs. I could be wrong about that. I might have to go back and edit. But it was about 1, no, you're right. yeah. one in every 144. Now, people loved this. They were buying packs left and right, waiting to crack Expeditions. And up until that point, people had actually been complaining about the price of Standard. How Standard was really kind of expensive, and they, they wished that there was a way for Wizards to lower the cost to buy into the game. And these things came together to completely crush all of the singles in Battle for Zendikar, except for the Gideon Planeswalker. The Gideon Planeswalker was the only card over $10 in that set. And then the player base sort of shifted and started to complain about the lack of valued cards in the set. So players went from really wanting a cheap standard 
to wanting a cheap standard, but wanting their cards to still be worth something. Yeah, it's really robbing Peter to pay Paul, the strategy, right? And you always hear this, the players would complain if Wizards put $100 bills in the packs, right? Which, I always hated that argument, because the market forces are the market forces, right? If there if there were $100 bills in the packs, then the packs would cost, the, the cost of the packs would increase to a point to reflect that the $100 bills were in there. And that was basically exactly what happened in this scenario, except it was the other cards in the pack being devalued by the $100 bill. If Wizards released dual lands in an expedition rarity, the sort of market forces and price equilibrium would kick in, and all of the other cards in that set would be worth nothing. Because you can't have the expected value of a box be above... 80 85 dollars because as soon as it gets significantly above that number then vendors who can get boxes at cost will crack them to sell the singles wizards would have to try to balance an extremely delicate secondary market in deciding how they were going to release something like that and they recently haven't been able to balance their master set prices, not fully understanding how the market value of a card like Imperial Recruiter was based off of scarcity and not organic demand. And if Wizards doesn't have the ability to balance their non-reserve list reprints to sell sets, I don't think that they can balance reserve list reprints to sell sets. Well, I don't think that that's really the main concern anyway. I think that if those cards were in there, basically you're expanding the legacy player base by putting those cards in there. Somebody's sure. going to open a Tundra and open a Badlands and someone else will open the same and then trade with the other person. So now someone has two Tundras and someone else has two Badlands. Now you've got a Miracles player and a Black Red Reanimator player. And they're not going to play standard anymore. You know, that's that's just unfortunately the way the funnel goes. Let's say one of the two will not play standard anymore. That's, I think, a more reasonable way to put that and more accurate. That's not what you want to be doing is cannibalizing your standard user base. Your standard user base is definitely what you want to be able to monetize the most. And I think we all agree we're listening, we're making a legacy podcast, we're listening to a legacy podcast, that legacy as a format is a lot more engaging than most standard formats. So in opening up the access that people have to play Legacy, you are really shooting yourself in the foot later on because that player is probably not going to be playing Standard anymore. That when I had the I when I made the statement earlier that Wizards was competing with themselves, that's really what I was talking about. Yeah, and you mentioned that to me maybe last week or the week before, with regard to old school. And I really like that turn of phrase that they were competing with themselves because that's really what they're doing, right? That I can either play on a given night. You know, my time is limited. I can only play Magic for maybe, if I'm not going to a tournament, at best probably 10, 15 hours a week. So there's playing Legacy Online, which Wizards makes a small cut of. There's playing Legacy in person, which they make no cut of. There's playing old school at a bar, which they make no cut of. Or there's going to draft at a store, which they do make a cut of. And really, they're directly competing with the 93-94 format, because I'm choosing between playing that or going to draft. Yeah, not only is Wizards competing for dollars, they're competing for time. And formats like Legacy and Cube Draft to most players, are a lot more engaging than drafting the limited set and playing standard. And as time goes on, if access to these eternal formats increases, then Wizards is going to see a lot of people sort of drop out of that sweet spot in their, in their revenue model, which is one of the reasons why they're making a real push for Arena. They have a lot of incentive to not really support 
legacy in paper because they're not going to be supporting it for arena the programming problems to bringing all of the past sets of magic to a venue like arena would be immense and it doesn't sort of have that cross promotion with their paper sets that will be available in target and walmart and the digital game yeah the idea that legacy or even modern would ever be on arena i think that's just that's crazy there's no way that they should do that well i think that the rumor going around is that there is going to be a sort of new modern ish that will coincide with arena so whatever the oldest standard set is when arena that is on arena when it releases that's going to sort of be the new cutoff for the new modern so it can well, be yeah, compatible I, I fully, with arena i fully believe that and that's that's not what i'm saying i'm saying going back and and coding all those old cards to what we currently refer to as modern that's just never going to happen in arena i agree it would be a very difficult undertaking that they aren't really motivated to do and if i understand this correctly the old cards from Amonkhet and kaladesh block are not in arena right now right those objects are are not part of the code i only reinstalled arena after seeing that i had a free pre-release code for a sealed and i i haven't actually played much i've heard much better things about the recent builds of arena but i'm unsure what the first set the oldest set that's on it right now is well so they had kaladesh cards in there at, at some point i guess during the the closed beta and once the rotation came from what I've heard from other people, those objects just are not in the game anymore, which makes sense because they're able to keep the program lightweight. They're able to strip those things like energy from the rule set entirely and not have that bogging down. You know, if it's coded properly, it shouldn't really be bogging anything down, but nothing's ever coded to perfect standards, whether we're talking about wizards or not, just as a software developer. there's You're always going to be adding some sort of weight with additional card sets, additional rules, additional keywords. Stripping Arena of everything that was in Kaladesh and Amonkhet allows this standard to play better. So that's just what they're doing. Back compatibility with the rules would be an extremely difficult undertaking that doesn't work in promoting their new card sets. So I'm just looking at some posts online about the reserve lists some of the things that we've gotten involved in before some battles from the past two years, really. I'm not, I'm not in any of those groups to have those battles anymore. That's why we're recording this podcast. So how do you feel about this statement? The game is for playing, not for collectors to hoard cards for money. It wouldn't be a collectible card game if it wasn't collectible. And you can play with those cards that you don't have get a sharpie and get a planes and write on it print out the picture on your printer cut it out and put it in a sleeve nobody is stopping you from doing that to play with these cards now hoarding and what what was the exact quote again the game is for playing not for collectors to hoard cards for money that statement comes from a place where somebody who doesn't have these cards is angry at the people who do and i think the the term hoarding is is just sort of wrong there are a lot of people who have these cards who aren't hoarding them they have them because they use them and they've played the game longer than some people and yes cards are for playing but this is a collectible game where budget matters. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it really is out of spite, right? This sort of, I want these cards and I don't want to have to pay for them. Or, you know, however that argument works. And there's, there's a more reasonable side to this, which is, 
I just want to see Legacy prosper. I just want more people to play against. There's parts of the U.S. where nobody's playing Legacy anymore. You know, larger cities, especially, like, I've heard Florida, Texas, areas like that, where apparently there is no Legacy scene. And you have these scattered Legacy players from those areas saying, I just want to be able to play with somebody. There's nobody playing here anymore. That That's sort of the second argument you hear. Now, I, I 100% understand that argument i already have opened it up quite a bit death and taxes was a deck that almost completely got reprinted decks like dredge only have a few reserve list pieces and they're extremely positive to run right now they basically shipped an entire eldrazi deck with the printing of oath of the Gatewatch. watch all right what's a what's another one been playing since Alpha. I've had to liquidate twice. Early on, I was in possession of power. Now that I've prefaced my long-term standing in the game, I'd like to hear more opinions regarding abolishment of the reserve list. In my opinion, it would open up the format, increase attendance, and increase the prize pool, specifically for those with experience under their belt. Not sure what that means. Would this not offset the temporary loss in value or open up those same cheaper cards to personally expand your own legacy collections? I should also note I'm not a tournament grinder, so my philosophy may be different. Well, I, I don't understand what being not being a tournament grinder has to do with it. Increasing prize pools. It, Magic players have shown that they really don't give a shit about what the prize pools are. They're going to bitch and complain about it all the time no matter what but magic players are going to show up to play magic regardless of how terrible your prize pools are look at grand prix yeah there's basically no connection between attendance and prize pool at this point i mean people show up just as many people show up for the scg classics when they're paying cash as when they're playing paying prize wall tickets so one of the things i don't want to throw my buddy Ryan under the bus right now, but I was talking to him this weekend uh, on Saturday about they were doing a reserve list episode of the podcast. And he was saying that the way they can get rid of the reserve list is by the way that he described it was power creeping their way out of it by printing better cards than the reserve list, because I don't know how he thinks that's possible, but I just wanted to refute that argument in case other people believe that. That wasn't actually an opinion I'd really heard from other people, but you take a look at a card like Ancestral Recall. How are you going to print a better Ancestral Recall? And then once you do, how badly are you going to fuck up Vintage when you have to restrict that card, but now people have access to two Ancestral Recalls, basically? Well, Wizards doesn't really have to worry about messing up Vintage, and the sort of model that he's referring to it's kind of like the Yu-Gi-Oh! model. Exactly. Constantly rotate in new sets with extremely high power level cards that replace what you had before. It, it would be like playing Magic if Eldrazi Winter was every set. They could do that, but it would 100% erode confidence in the game. And I don't think that is something that's maintainable. If you continue doing that over a 25-year game, we would have a 2020 one-drop. Yeah, and part of spending money on standard cards is knowing that they're going to hold some sort of value. So I don't know how this model is sustainable if every time your cards rotate, they're essentially worthless because the new cards are more powerful than the old cards. Like I don't see how you wind up with eternal formats out of that, and I don't see how the cards that are out of print have any secondary value at all at that point. So I really don't think that that's a good solution. I agree. And the other thing about the reserve list that always seemed kind of obvious to me was some of it has to do with design space, right? Like you have the original dual lands. They're, they're beautiful to look at. They're beautiful in their simplicity, but they're very limiting to design space because they're a perfect duel with no downside, no no upside explicitly, but also no downside, right? So 
if those were available to people, where's the incentive to play things like uh, Underground River, right? There, if you think about all the lands, we have fetch lands and to a lesser degree, lands like City of Brass and Utility Lands competing with dual lands in terms of effectiveness. And I guess soul lands could be on that list too. But all the other design space like pain lands, check lands, filter lands, buddy lands, tri lands, that sort of stuff that sort of comes in and out of standard and may or may not be viable in modern or other formats, that's all design space that's opened up by getting rid of these sort of I don't want to call them short-sighted, but these these limiting designs that were in the original game. Yeah, and when you take a look at playing this game in terms of the level of excitement that you get by playing a card, if you've fetched a Tundra in your life, you're probably less excited to fetch a Hollowed Fountain. You're less excited to cast a Brainstorm after you've cast an Ancestral Recall. And these original cards, whose power level is probably too high for a game where you want the design space to be able to to add in different wrinkles, it's tough to get people excited about newer cards when they have access to the older ones. I think that's a big psychological factor, honestly. And you can see in some spots, going back to the power creep argument, you can see in some spots where they have just creeped past. I mean, you look at Brain Geyser compared to like Sphinx's Revelation, or you look at Fork compared to the hundreds of Forks that they've printed since then that are more powerful. There's one in the most recent set that's like, is it, is it, it can be a Fork and then for, you know, six mana, it can be something else. There are just far more more powerful cards where it's appropriate to have to have done that right or thunder spirit is another one that comes to mind like it's one white white for a two two flyer with first strike it is kind of a tragedy that that design space is closed forever because it's on the reserve list and that's the quote-unquote that's the rules to to think that that would be a playable creature these days is a joke right there are definitely some cards that are on the reserve list that that don't need to be there but in taking cards off of the reserve list you're really going to shock the market and after they reprinted mox diamond and three other reserve list cards in there from the vault exiled in 2010 and made the commitment to not reprint cards as foils in 2011 the price of reserve list cards now kind of has a factored in increase does that make sense yeah absolutely and there's i don't want to call it panic but there's sort of uh there can be a hysteria baked into that price because they're not printing any more of these and you fear that you'll be priced out like the the fear of missing out can end up in the prices of these cards. I'm not arguing that that's not a thing. I don't think that, you know, hoarders are a thing as per that argument. But I do think that there is a lot of FOMO buying and FOMO pricing in the market. But that's just, you know, that's that's sort of any finite good. How about no reserve list legacy? This is an argument that I've seen probably a hundred times from different people on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, look, you can do that. You can, you can play no reserved list legacy, but it's not going to compare to actual legacy where while you're playing no reserved list legacy and you're fetching your hollowed fountain and shocking, the only thing that you're going to feel in that interaction is how much you miss Tundra. And that's all fine and good if you never had a Tundra to play with. But it's just just the cheaper, less fun alternative to playing actual Legacy. 
you'd be better off just playing proxy legacy at that point yeah absolutely how do you think that this episode is going right now i have no idea and i'm wondering if we because we agree about this entirely i'm wondering if we need somebody if we'd really just benefit from having someone take the other side of this right oh definitely but i think right now we're just making the argument of why we're pro reserve list yeah so what we should do is extend an invite to our listeners if anyone's out there who disagrees with any of the shit that we're saying and would like to come on the cast and take us on tell us why we're wrong about this that we would love to have them i love that idea so do you want to summarize what our major points are so we can we can have this framework for somebody to challenge what our ideas are yeah so basically the you always hear maro saying i would repeal the reserve list if i could it was a mistake but now we're you know it's too late we're locked into this that's the biggest fucking lie the reserve list is great for watsi it's to their extreme benefit that they thought of it and that they're maintaining it and there's no way that anyone at that company could possibly believe it would be a good thing for the reserve list to go away. I don't care how stupid you are, right? They all have to recognize the benefit of it in terms of keeping players focused on standard. You know, the, the Pro Tour is always going to be standard, or the majority of the time it's going to be standard for a reason. Those are marketing dollars that are going into the Pro Tour, right? You need to keep people buying packs. And... The reserve list is a wonderful way to accomplish that. And modern is sort of a consolation to the fact that the cards need to have some value after they rotate. And the barrier to become a legacy card is extremely high. So legacy isn't going to support 99.5% of the cards. And modern will support an extra, I don't know, 2 or 3% of the cards. So that does provide some sort of secondary market value to the cards in standard. Outside of a, a set like Cons, where you actually are printing legacy power cards with like the Fetchlands, and I guess Treasure Cruise was in there. But outside of a set like that, you're generally like how many legacy cards honestly are in this set now? I mean we did a full we did a full set review and really I was probably only sold on one card. Yeah, I mean we're we're seeing Crater Maker, we're seeing War Boss show up. Night of Autumn is certainly playable as a one or two of, but that's not, you know, any sort of secondary market value for these cards. For Wizards to keep people focused on standard and limited, it's in their best interest not to draw attention away from it, not to subsidize people moving down funnel into eternal formats. They have an incentive to make the barrier for entry for Legacy, or the barrier to enter legacy very high the reserve list some of the cards that are on there they're they're very limiting to the design space of the game you know we sort of covered that recently and yeah is there anything else my major points that i had outlined before we started talking were that the easier legacy is to access the worse off standard is because people have a frame of reference to compare it to that any attempts to monetize newer players with those reserve list cards are just going to end up increasing the amount of legacy players, which diminishes the, like, the revenue stream later on. Which is really why I think that Wizards is correctly focusing on Arena and their online games in order to monetize people. Because then it does not have to compete with its older formats as it goes forward. The main argument comes down to if you repeal the reserve list and attempt to monetize it, you're just pillaging your income stream for the future. Yeah, no, I agree. That's the main argument. If you took the whole, you know, however many cards from Unlimited, however many cards from Arabian Nights, etc., are on the reserve list, and you know the print run from those periods, and multiplied them by the price and said, okay, Wizards has to make this much. It doesn't seem unlikely to me that they wouldn't be able to beat that. 
no, I 100% agree that they would probably be able to beat that. I don't think anybody is arguing that. But as soon as you do that, as soon as you open up the card pool to allow people to have a full legacy deck, they're tuned out of standard. Their standard deck doesn't seem as fun as it used to when they just played standard because that's what they could afford. They've had a taste of the good stuff. We've played Legacy and we've gone back to play standard. Like, Why do you play standard these days? Because there's an event that I want to compete in that's standard. That's the only reason. So it's basically because of Grand Prix? Yeah. Why do you play standard? I haven't in a few years, but I did play when uh, the little Jace was in standard. Um, Khan's Origins Battle, maybe? Does that sound right? Yeah, where you were playing like four color Jess guy. Yep, I was. And that was actually an enjoyable format. I like that format a lot. The the patterns, the play patterns were interesting. I felt like the sideboarding was very rewarding. There were there was a Rally the Ancestors deck. There was like a Mardu deck with Siege Rhino. There was the Jace deck that I played. There was a mono red deck, or actually it was more like a red green deck. That had a Tarka's, Tarka's command. command. Is that her name? Yeah, a Tarka's yes. command. Uh, they were all interesting games. Honestly, I, I enjoyed that standard a lot. If people want to yell and scream at you because you are an evil hoarder that doesn't want to share the love with everybody else in the world, where can they get in touch with you? At Ian18125 on Twitter. And if people want to get in touch with you, because you're basically everything that's wrong with magic, uh, where can they do that? You can get in touch with me at tsmileymtg, and you can get in touch with both of us at deadformatcast. And deadformatcast at gmail.com if you have any emails. And as I mentioned earlier, if anybody wants to debate us on this, I think it would be helpful to have the opposing view on here, because... We agree with each other too much in this. All right, hopefully we find somebody.